Hello, ladies and listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. But first, I want to give a shout out to our new Patreon supporters. So shout out to Brandon Stoy and Colin Baldwin. If you want to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash liturgy. And secondly, thank you to all of you who signed up for our taping of our online courses. We really appreciate it. Unfortunately, for the rest of you, those spots are now full. We will let you know when other courses are available that we need to tape. So just keep following the podcast and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And lastly, we're talking about the liturgical movement this week. And I swear that we did a podcast about this already. But as I went in the archives, I discovered that we only talked about people who were involved in the liturgical movement, not the liturgical movement in and of itself. So without further ado, episode four of season three of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. I, Jesse, am getting old. Do you know how I know this? <laughs> Your name's not Jesse. Your name's Dennis. <laughs> I come at Jesse. <laughs> oh, God. I'm getting old. And how I know this is that I, I'm starting hair? to need, well, that, and I'm starting <laughs> to need reading glasses. So all you punk college students out there who think it will never happen to you, it does. The problem is I can't put the glasses on with these headphones, so it's a problem. You need your liturgical lenses. Or your monocle. Um, yeah. <laughs> an ascot and a monocle and a big <laughs> Tudor estate. What's what an ascot? It's like a mascot without the name. <laughs> no, an ascot is a thing you see on old rich people. It looks like a silk handkerchief wrapped around the neck. I thought that was neck. a dicky. No, that's something else. Um, and it, it's kind of like a tie, but it, you know, they open the, bu- open the top button and it just kind of hangs out. Oh, it's like a fancy scarf. Well, yeah, but it's called an ascot. <laughs> it's called an ascot. Scarf. You can what? still buy those. Why is that so funny to you? Because he has several in some places <laughs> you don't know. When he's hanging around on the farm in Wisconsin, <laughs> he walks around with his cane, his monocle, and his ascot. Welcome to Johnson Farm. I want to talk about what is the liturgical movement. Now, haven't we done this before? We we have yes. done this before, but I assume that we have not done it to the degree in which we are about to do it. That's right. right. We, we didn't talk about ascots. We're give you a third degree. <laughs> so, you know, we talked about the liturgical movement many times in passing. That this movement toward the liturgy. And it has a history with all these famous speakers and everything. But it really still goes on, and it went up right up to Vatican II. And when we talked about it, I think the last time specifically, we were looking at a document from 1930 called What is the Liturgical Movement that came out of Collegeville, Minnesota. But in 1956, the Liturgical Conference, which was a group of priests and others who were interested in promoting the liturgy, um, came up with another book called What is the Liturgical Movement? So 26 years later, they're still asking the same darn question. And I think it's a good thing to look at, not just because it... What year did this one come out? 1956. Okay. It's not just, you know, repeating the same old stuff, although many of it is the same. But by 1930, a few things had happened. By 1956, the pace had really picked up. Pius XII had put out his encyclical on on the liturgy called Mediator Dei, and other popes had made statements about what ought to be done. Dialogue masses had been given more permission. And then people really started to say, okay, the, the, the council hadn't been called yet, but they had this kind of like vibe in the air that like it was coming to this great moment when suddenly this, uh, 
don't know what you'd call it, this excitement would burst out into the world and liturgical participation would change uh, forever. And so there's a couple of things in here, like uh, uh, little quizzes. Uh, are you ready oh, for the liturgical movement? Do, yeah. do you do these things? Okay. So hmm. Let's see. This is you, a 1956 quiz. Well, yeah. It's called The Pope Has Raised Many Questions. So he says, in Pius XII, the media today raised all these questions about. The Pope being at this time? This, well, Pius he's talking about Pius XII. Okay. Um, so there's a lot of questions here, but do you know the meaning of worship? Like, I, it's a reasonable question for listeners and also for us. Of course I do. It's obvious. It's obvious because you teach it all the time. But how well developed in our consciousness is the virtue of religion? First of all, what's the virtue of religion? What's virtue? Anybody, what's a virtue? Know? Yeah. The virtue of religion is exercising this duty that we all, we owe to God for creating us, right? So that's kind of the simple well, yeah, I mean, form yeah. of it. Um, do we know what it means to offer a religious sacrifice? We were just we talk about these things. What does it mean mm -hmm. to offer a sacrifice? But th these are great. These are not you know bizarre, um, arcane type of liturgical trivia. What is worship? What does it mean to offer a sacrifice? Are pretty uh, pretty fundamental, right? And based on last week's podcast, here's this question: Do we look on the mass and the sacraments as acts in which we worship God, or only as acts in which we receive His graces? Yes. So no. This, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, wow. Both. Wow. Is going this to mass an act of worship, or is it just the thing you sit through until you get? The communion right so this would be in the 50s model i don't get anything out of it yeah i don't get anything out of this you know because i i'm in more didn't sin. put anything into it i receive communion anyway and i don't really know what's going on and i don't listen and i read the bulletin and then oh well this is a waste of my time i mean if you went to the gym and read the bulletin you would say why don't i get anything out of this <laughs> oh hold on i have i have to tell this story a tell friend this. of mine his a parents, jesse jim story this is a friend of mine's parents joined this gym and it was one of those like ten dollar a month gyms and every once a month they had a pizza night and they <laughs> they only went to the gym on pizza night <laughs> oh, I was like, like, my kind of gym it's like the opposite of the gym for ten dollars a month that's pretty good free pizza but you're right if you don't know what you're supposed to be doing then you kind of flail around and you don't see any uh any results um here's a good one do we realize that what it means that christ is our redeemer our mediator with god our head our priest that's a lot there. We kind of think, oh, Christ is our Redeemer. You know, he, he opened the door to heaven for us. Our mediator with God. Well, mediator day, was, that's what that means. You know, mediator, it's actually mediator day. Someone's got to stick up for me because <laughs> I don't have a very good case in front of God. Mediator mm -hmm. between God and men is actually the first line of mediator day. Mm -hmm. Why do we need a mediator? Why don't we just go straight to the Father? That's a good question. Or... What's wrong with just going straight to Jesus, right? Some, one of these questions he asked later, do we realize we're worshiping God or do we just pray to Jesus? No, that yeah. is a mm. funny question because of course we pray to Jesus. He's God. Well, what's the problem with that? Because it's so only half the equation, so to speak. It's to the Father. Because there has to be a, an intent of directives where, where's the, where in the end, where is this praise and worship going? And through whom? Right. So the question is, do we pray and offer at Mass through Christ and with him and in him, or are we simply praying to Christ? So hmm. think about this. If you have a devotional prayer and you're, you've got cancer and you're scared, Jesus, please heal me. Okay, that is a prayer to Christ, and it's good. However, the liturgy is actually acting as Christ 
to God. Having dialogue with the Father through the love of the Holy Spirit. And that is a very important and central thing. The kernel, the essential element of the Eucharistic prayer, especially, but the whole Mass, is I can pray to God the Father. I have access to the Father because I'm Christ. Christ is that mediator, but guess what? I'm him because I'm a member of the mystical body. His headship gathers up my prayers and petitions and makes them acceptable to the Father. But nonetheless, I have access to God because Christ took human form and took humanity back to divinity. That's pretty darn important. I have a question. Yes. Uh, I, I don't think this is off topic, but liturgically speaking, other than um, during the um, communion prayer, there's not a lot of Mary speak. So what is Mary, uh, what is her deal in terms of the liturgy? Well, she's a member of the mystical body as well. She's a privileged member of the mystical body. Does she have a particular role in Eucharistic action, Chris, outside of her feast days? Well, let's see. So she's mentioned in the Eucharistic prayers. Right. So she has but, a, but also a privileged mediatorial uh, place and a place in the economy of salvation. But um, well, more is one of us interceding for us. But I think that's interesting to, mm. to note because, you know, um, speaking devotionally, there's Mary is supreme. I mean, she's the mother of God and she. she but uh, she's not God. But she, right. And so I think that's very important that there, there is no distinctive Marian place, liturgically speaking, mm. in what we're talking about because it. It makes us know where she is and who she is in relation to what we're doing. Right. Well, she's per, she's an image of the church too. Right. So I wonder if um, she gives birth to Christ in the world, just as where's as the church is mm. Christ in the world. So she has this pivotal role in salvation, both as a foretaste of mm -hmm. what a person without sin would be. You know, she was conceived without sin. We hopefully will be freed from all sin. And so she has a lot of important roles, but liturgically speaking? Yeah, we're not going through Mary, then to Jesus, then to God, and then back down to Jesus. I mean, well, yeah. not, not, yeah, I don't want to, I don't want to say right. anything she more. Has very, <laughs> she has that very important intercessory role, but I would right. think in the Missal itself, you'd be hard-pressed to find any particular role given to her in the text of the church. Hopefully, you could say, oh, I have this intention, I want to act as Christ, I want to give myself as a victim, Mary, help me do that, or obtain for me the right. grace that I may offer myself as And that's Christ. not to negate who she is and what she is to us, but it's, I, I just th find it very interesting that, directively speaking, if we're looking at the very core of the liturgy. Yeah. Well, you're thinking like a liturgical movement scholar, Jesse, because All right. if your formation was such that you said to yourself, or never thought anything different from, my job at Mass is to pray my devotions while the priest says Mass, and I'll pray to Mary that she gets me into, you know, into heaven someday. Get, intercede for me and obtain for me the grace of eternal salvation. Okay, nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. However, right in front of you in the altar is the privileged place for right. becoming divinized by offering yourself through the headship of Christ uh, as the victim on the altar. And so what these people were noticing in the 50s wasn't so much like, all right, devotions are bad. It was devotions are good, but they're not the kernel, the central issue. Are you just praying to Jesus? Are you singing, O Secret Head Surrounded, or, or meditating on the suffering Christ alone? Or are you meditating on the suffering Christ as the sacrificial victim that is now being represented to the Father in which you get to participate and rise again? These are good questions. I think these would be good to put in a little card in the pew before Mass, mm, and you can sit good there. Idea. Yeah, he yeah. doesn't give any answers. He just asks all but, these no, questions. But the, no, but those are important questions to they ask to help important. orient yourself. It would be. I, I was thinking... Uh, uh, this would be like a good final exam for um, 
<laughs> seminarians or, or something. Any or liturgical Christian. institute. Any, well, yeah. Like, Pre- yeah. Better, I, better I said. Say, That's much better said. Unless they're reading liturgical movement scholars. I don't know how many seminary faculty or students or ordained priests would know that. I mean, what we just talked about. So, you know, think about the liturgical movement scholars. They're like crazed with this excitement. We've discovered the central act that we're not doing, and we can see the corruption falling around of us because we're not doing what we ought to be doing. We're not offering ourselves as sacrifices. So we got to tell everybody, tell the whole world, they have the Vatican Council, and we're going to write Sacrosanct Concilium so the highest teaching of authority of the church will bring this to the minds of people, and they can be transformed by participating in the liturgy. And then they write this beautiful document, and what do they get out of it? Coffee and donuts, <laughs> ministries, you know, hospitality. They're still missing the essential point. And now the kind of inherited traditions are, are missing too, and they're starting to come back. But see, this prevents you from a narrow-minded, old-school world. If we just go back to 1956, everything will be fine, because these people are pretty darn clear that things are not fine in 1956 even though the mm-hmm. shell might be there there's something kind of uh, empty in inside and so yeah there's says, some people who, who are like a video game they're like well i just want to go to the last checkpoint <laughs> the last thing that was like yes that was solid right so he says the problem is we need integration so what does integration have to do with it he says christ the lord became man to reintegrate all things into himself and to reorient reorient all of creation to himself so in this is a, a good phrase here chris see if you can tell me what this means you can you can chime in too just <laughs> um thanks dennis <laughs> in his church in his mystical body he could he continues his work until the end of time i thought christian christ came died on the cross his work was done it is finished and he's back with the father the right hand of the father and everything's great right no that's everything that it what about all the acts of the apostles when he kind of hung out afterwards? He was like, "Hey, I'll stick around for a little bit." Yeah, okay, so then he had, you know, there's the ascension. He but, went back to the father. But even, and, but even then, he said, "I will forever be with you, and and I will send you my advocate, that which is the Holy Spirit." Right. So the church is his mystical body, right? We I think, took that one for you, Chris. The church is not a legal organization. <laughs> well, but what's the answer to the question? I mean, why does why isn't the work done? Well, because it's continuing in us. Until right. the end of time when everything's done. Isn't uh, Cardinal Ratzinger saying in the spirit of the liturgy that the heavenly Jerusalem is being built, but it's quote unquote still under construction? Yeah. Right. It's that been drawn. It's awesome. Blueprints awesome. are perfect and they're ready, but little by little the blocks We're are being, being formed in fashion by the Savior Mason's hammer. That's yeah. what I would say. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and so whenever there's a church scandal and, you know, they come up fairly regularly, you don't say, oh, well, I'm leaving the church because this bishop did X, Y, or Z, or this priest stole money, or so-and-so ran off with the secretary. Yeah, okay, great. Those are not good things. However, it doesn't change the fact that the church is the continuing work of the mystical body of Christ in the world until, he says in this little document here, until that work is complete and God is all in all. That's the great scriptural line. When God is all in all, that means everything's been brought to the glory of God, or at least the glory he wanted it uh, to have. And so, um, a couple of words you hear a lot are individualism at this time. You've talked about that, Chris. Before, I've heard right? a lot of isms, but yeah. individualism is one I when I hear a lot. Right. What's the What's the problem with individualism liturgically? Well, does it doesn't make you think of the corporate body of Christ? Right, make you me think, and Jesus. Yeah. Right? If you do it at all, it's just I have my personal relationship with Jesus. And, personal Lord and Savior. And he is our personal Lord and Savior. But because of that, he can bring us to God the Father through this action of offering himself 
And because we're him, because we're members of the mystical body, he offers us. And if you just say, I'm here by myself and I'm talking to Jesus, well, that's one thing. But to say, I'm a member of the mystical body, that body is being offered to the Father eternally perfectly, and I'm getting offered to the Father eternally perfectly too, that's a whole different thing and much, much, much more uh, efficacious. You're thinking deep thoughts, Chris. Uh, it's not really a deep thought. But <laughs> you look you know like when, you didn't. You know when you get on an airplane and uh, everybody's rushing to get into Zone Six or whatever is Zone Five. You probably fly first class. I always try to get into the danger the zone. Danger, I try to stay out of the danger zone. But right and then, that, now and again, you hear somebody say, "We're all going to get there at the same time." Right? Doesn't matter. You know, if you're the first one into the plane or the last one in the plane, the plane arrives at the same time. And it, sometimes I always think. Sometimes I always. Sometimes I think it's kind of an analogy of you know the church the ark you know the ship's getting there and the individuals are going to get there as a collective uh, yeah. body you ever uh, see those people church. on the plane or in the, in the last row or near the last row but they're first ones out of the seat as soon as the thing goes ding to get off the plane and they're like all anxious and they're saying they cannot move <laughs> until <laughs> mm-hmm. the people in front of them move and being anxious is not going to make it any faster mm-hmm. but it's like we gotta get out gotta get out get out right? it's happening either way so this eternal act of christ right so he dies on the cross but he is and rises again but his action is an eternal act it's not a once and done historical act and so his offering of himself to the father is an eternal gift like a husband theoretically should makes an eternal act of offering of himself to his family or his spouse and so you hop on that and not just watch it not do something else not have a personal one-on-one time instead of this corporate action so he calls this integration Humanity and divinity have to become one. And if you're not doing that process where that happens, then you're missing out. That's active participation, properly speaking, in the liturgy internally. And then exterior means doing what the rites ask uh, to do. So there's a section here on page eight that says, by what authority? Right in the 50s, people were all afraid of this. This was radical sounding stuff. So he quotes some things from Leo the 13th and then Pius the 10th, all these people we've heard of before. Then he has some good quotes by Benedict the 15th, who I think is a little underrated as a liturgical Pope, but he did all kinds of, I think he's uh, underrated as any Pope. I never hear about him. Well, that's right. And you know, (laughs) Benedict the 16th picked that name because he wanted to continue the work Mm -hmm. of Benedict Mm -hmm. the 15th. And he said as much, he was a Pope during world war one and he was trying to bring reconciliation to Europe. And, but he also um, did some things in terms of uh, allowing he encouraged the publication of vernacular missiles, so Latin and um, vernacular side by side. And he had a dialogue mass, the Pope, with a bunch of youth. And he mentioned that the whole What's con- a dialogue mass? That's where the people actually answered, believe it or not. Versus, Versus. Otherwise, it'd be like the servers, right? Right, the servers. So, yeah. Lord be with you, and everybody answers, and with your spirit, instead of just the servers or nobody, mm-hmm. like a low mass might. And they all sang the Pater Noster in Italian and the Creed. Which is oh, no of, kidding. Right. So this was, you know. Before. Not in Latin, in Italian. Right. Hmm. In, in, in St. Peter's, in which the entire congregation of Italian Catholic youth joined. Oh, they joined him in the creed in the Paternoster. They didn't sing it in Italian. Okay. They sang it with him. Sorry. And they yeah. were Italian. And they were in Italy. <laughs> right. And then. Uh, Glad we got that clarified. Pius the 11th. Who knows what Pius the 11th did, right? We didn't think of Pius the 12th sometimes. He started the uh, Feast of Christ the King. And he talked about people being co-offerers and co-victims with Jesus Christ. Hmm. What does that mean? Are we stealing Jesus' singularity here? His why, individualism? Why are people co-offerers <laughs> and co-victims? That's God's design. Is that uh, he's the Jesus, pon- Jesus he's could the pont- do this. He's the pontifex. So he, he <coughs> being mediator, he allows us. 
he allows us to be to sacrifice ourselves in which we couldn't do that even without Christ if we wanted to sacrifice ourselves we wouldn't be able to do it to the degree that we could do it through Christ. well we could but it wouldn't the, do much really. not, could, right not to the degree that we could do with Christ well could Jesus save you against your will no no so I think he, uh, I mean is this is it a right to say Jesus is powerless to save you if you don't want to be saved the only mm. thing God can do. <laughs> get into medieval arguments about that. But I think that's what the co is, is he's, he's respecting your will and right. your integrity to say, okay, uh, I'll do all the heavy lifting here. I'll do most of the bridge building and offering and priesting and things like that. But you have to at least tag along. Right. And because you are Christ, right? You are a member of Christ. Monsignor Esif is a famous spiritual director. He's about 90, I guess. And he always says, tells people, you are Jesus. And it's a kind of a joke. If you say, oh, I'm going to go see Monsignor Esif, they always say, he's going to tell you you're Jesus. And you're, yeah, whatever. When he first told me that, I was like, what does that mean? I'm not Jesus. Jesus is Jesus. He's up in heaven. I'm down here. But as a membership of the mystical body, as a member of the mystical body, because of my baptism, I can offer myself as a priest who offers a sacrifice and that sacrifice is me except it only is efficacious when it's joined to that sacrifice of christ and brings it uh, to the father so this is pope pius XI saying this stuff well before vatican ii and then of course pius XII said all kinds of things that were um, really good the point is that this was for all the faithful and their time before vatican ii they were trying to convince people that this scary sounding theology wasn't radical crazy radical now it sounds like darn traditional right Let's get, mm. get to the essential meat of this so uh what he says is the purpose of this liturgical movement that we're talking about is to give the faithful an awareness of their priestly dignity and privileges in other words they can offer themselves as a victim and they ha therefore have a greater appreciation and reverence for the special priesthood conferred by holy orders now that's a funny thing we kind of think if you talk about the priesthood of the faithful then that diminishes the role mm. of the uh, ordained priesthood but why would you think if you know that you're a priest why would you love the ordained priesthood even more i wonder if it's because uh you know, jesus has to build the bridge and you can't do it yourself and it's the ordained priest who's standing in the place of the the great pontifex and so without him you're as powerless as you are without jesus so he's kind of standing in uh, the place of Jesus. Right. Well, the priest is in persona Christi capitis, capitis in the head. And if you're, if you're decapitated and your body's just flailing around, how can you offer your prayers to the Father? You can't. Like the head has to take all the desires of the body and all the members to the Father. So the ordained priest is essential as the one who gathers up and offers all your offering. So you offer yourself, basically, if, the, if a priest said to you, hey, I'm going to Uganda and I'm going to bring clothes, do you have any clothes I can give? Well, you're not going to Uganda, but the priest is going. You put all the clothes in the, in the crate and he takes them to the people who need them. Think of it that way. You need someone to be that mediator between you. Except and for you're getting those clothes back and they're going to be better than they exactly were. Exactly right. So the priest <laughs> nice is gathering just. up the prayers and petitions of the new Israel, which is the church, just as Christ gathers up the prayers and petitions More of like humanity. the priest is having them laundered and then you get them back and they're clean. Not only laundered, perfect. but glorified. Yeah. And uh, so Radiant. this is for every Catholic. So he, he ends with a what we should do list. Okay, so let's see. We can finish this way too. What, what we should do. That clock is inoperative, I think. Oh, it's no, working right. now. To cultivate a deep appreciation of the Mass is a central act of Christian worship. 
So really, is the Mass the central act of the Christian life, or is it the thing we got to get to because it's Sunday obligation or else, right? Judging by the tone of your voice, the former? <laughs> well, hopefully. To cultivate active internal and external participation. We sort of have external down, you know, stand, sit, sing. But internally, are you saying, wow, I am a priest according to my baptismal dignity, joined to the mystical body of Christ, member of the mystical body of Christ. I'm offering that to God the Father at, in the Eucharistic prayer. Candidly, I'm usually saying, does Isaac need more snacks or can he last? Are you yeah. a snack during mass? I try, I try it. Once they get a certain age, I, I the put the kibosh yeah. out. Yeah. But, oh, but because of the way it fits with the timing, he, he just he needs a we little need bit a, of a snack. We need to do a podcast about this, Dennis. Yeah. Okay. Cheerios <clears throat> are not the Eucharist. All right. So deep appreciation of the liturgical year, the sacramentals and all of that, because that helps you realize what you're doing as you offer yourself as a victim. And then, like, do we read this stuff? I mean, we're liturgy wonks, so we sort of read this kind of thing. But do you actually say, the Mass is the central act of my life. How much do I know about this? I mean, do I really say, I'm going to get more. Do, do you know as much about the Mass as you know about the Packers? How to use your <laughs> iPhone or the statistics of the upcoming college football season or whatever it is, right? Um, and then you'll like this, Jesse, to foster the vitality of the normal units of the Christian life, the home as the little church, he calls it. Oh. So you have the home is the little church, then the parish is the next one, the diocese is the next one, and then the whole church is the next one. And then he talks in relation to that to draw more closely to the bonds uniting Christians to their fathers. Who do you think the great, the, the hierarchy of fathers would be in the church? You'd have your natural father, right, in your house as a kid. Then who would be your the grand, grandfather? Your grandfather, your great grandfather. No, no, your pastor. The bishop. The bishop. And then finally, the pope. pope. The pope, right? As he calls the vicar of Christ. And he's the head of the mystical body on the whole earth, right? So, in a sense, a father's the head of the mystical body in the house. The priest is the mystical body in the parish. The bishop is the head of that mystical body in the diocese. And the pope is the head of that mystical body throughout the whole church. And here's one we don't do promote the solemn prayer of the church, especially. Sunday and Solemn Feast Day Vespers. They really mm. wanted people to sing the Liturgy of the yeah. Hours, especially Sunday Vespers, when they thought people would be free uh, to do that. And so then he takes it to Catholic action. So to take all these graces that you received and take them out to the world. So what is the big thing here? The big thing is God established a pattern of salvation, right? Which is, my son came and died and rose again. He's offering himself. You can watch it or you can do it. You can think it's somebody else's problem or you can be your action. So when you think about active participation, think of it that way. The external stuff is important to uh, bring your disposition to this internal self-offering, not just as a ho-hum, if God is a mean guy, I better give myself or he'll fry me, but God loves me so much, he gave me the dignity of being Christ, participating in the sacrifice of Christ, being divinized, glorified, united with him forever until... Seculat seculorum. Amen. <laughs> now we get to go to Mass. Christ's life. Woohoo! Christ Let's life. do it. All right. You suckers have to listen to the question. We're going to go to Mass. So you guys know that we love the Liturgical Institute and we love everything that we do here. But you know who else loves the Liturgical Institute? Yeah, Bishop Robert Barron. And guess what he has to say about it? Well, I've known the Liturgical Institute from the very beginning. I was at Mundelein on the faculty in 2000 when it started. I knew Monsignor Mannion very well, who was the founder. Uh, Dr. McNamara, who was with him from the beginning, I've known. We've become good friends. I've spoken many times there. I've known all the faculty members. I've known many of the students. So I, I know from the ground up what the, um, the LI does. And they introduce people into the beauty 
of the church's intellectual tradition and liturgical tradition. And um, I don't know in the country a better place to go to get immersed precisely in that aesthetic dimension and the intellectual than the LI. So, you know, I'm a big fan. Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, our next question comes from Eileen. Eileen says, at Mass, is the presiding priest required to wear his chasuble while celebrating Mass? If yes, how should a lay member approach the priest if he's not wearing his chasuble at daily Mass? What is the symbolism, meaning, and reason for the chasuble? Thanks. You probably have chapter and verse ready to go, Chris, on this one. General instruction of the Roman Missal number 337. 337. The vestment proper to the priest celebrant at Mass and during other sacred actions directly connected with Mass is the chasuble, worn, unless otherwise indicated, over the alb and stole. Now, does that mean it can be otherwise indicated that it's not worn or that it's not worn over the alb and stole? No. The, uh, it's, the alb always goes underneath as indicated here. The otherwise refers to those cases where, say, Palm Sunday, where the priest can enter wearing a cope. Aha. Okay, so uh, he would start uh, the mass, the procession with a cope, and when he would get to the chair, he would uh, remove the cope and replace it with a chasuble. So pretty much there is no licit time except for wearing a cope that a chasuble is not worn, unless it's specifically prescribed, right? Just to say, well, it's hot, or I don't feel like it, or that's old-fashioned, there's no licit answer to that. I can't think of one. Can't think of one. All right. So no. what do you do if you're a parishioner and the priest doesn't wear one? Yeah, well, um, maybe let's take the second question first. So, all right. So we know what the rule says, but why does the rule say it? Uh, what's the thinking behind it? Uh, I mean, in the history, I think you can look, they trace these things back to what? Roman senators or maybe um, uh, Greek or Byzantine court ceremonial. I think the chasuble, though, is more of a Roman senatorial garb. So that's may, perhaps it's uh, historical roots. But there's a real nice meditation on this in Cardinal Ratzinger's The Spirit of the Liturgy, uh, where he talks about uh, vesture and he brings us back to the story of the prodigal son. And when the prodigal son comes back, he puts uh, the finest robe, apparently, uh, the Greek is the first robe. And what Cardinal Ratzinger, if I recall, makes about this is this is sort of the, the restoration of, you know, so we have fallen man and he's, he's restored uh, back to, and in fact, in a better way than he was before his uh, discretions and his falls. And so it's kind of restoring uh, the Adam to uh, what he was, and in fact, even better than himself. Uh, but other places, I think this is in the germ somewhere. I mean, the different uh, uh, vesture and colors add dignity and splendor and order to the celebration. And also, too, I mean, when, when the priest or the deacon or any minister, for that matter, steps into a liturgical role, it has, really has nothing to do with Chris Karstens or Father Bill or Deacon Bob or anything like that. Oh, Deacon the, Bob. The, oh. <laughs> yeah, I should have left him. Yeah. The, uh, the individual characters of these people is, is uh, in many ways, irrelevant. It's, it's because we're putting on Christ, and we, what we want the people to see is Christ. And what, so this is what vesture starts to do. So we know the rule. We know a little bit of the history. We know 
know some of the theology. And so with that in mind, uh, I think a parishioner is within his or her right to, to, to have a discussion, you know, a respectful, pr- prayerful, charitable discussion with a pastor about, you know, why this happened. You know, may, may, maybe it's out of the cleaner or something like that. Who, who knows? Maybe it was mis- Maybe uh, it had to be borrowed out of the set. This it caught ha- on fire five well, minutes before. Maybe that. it did. You're lighting the charcoal. We have <laughs> we have vestments disappear. So, you know, always give. I think the the other person, you know, the benefit of the doubt. But I mean, you know, I just have a discussion about uh, the use of. Uh, the right things for the liturgy. And something I would like to research someday is a connection between the vestments of the high priest and the Temple of Solomon and the vestments as we have them now because standard liturgical methodology says, well, it was the Roman garment. It was called the cassula and it was the walking garment, kind of like a tilma, you know, with a hole in the top and it was for covering your clothes when you're out on the dusty roads. And therefore, it's just a secular garment that then got glorified by liturgical use. But, you know, if you actually study the garments the high priest wore, they were made of these four colors of fabric. So there was red wool, purple wool, um, blue wool, and then linen. Linen represented the earth. Blue represented the the sky. Purple represented the sea. And then the red represented the, uh, the stars, the fire. So you had basically all of creation brought into the person of the priest, just as Christ took all creation onto himself. And then the priest wore that garment into the presence of God. In other words, Christ, the high priest, brought all the creation on himself, took it to God the Father. And so when the priest is wearing a chasuble now, very often you'll see gold or and flowers or angels or something carved or not carved, uh, embroidered on the chasuble. So essentially he's wearing the new garment of salvation. He's wearing new creation on himself and bringing it again to the Father. So whether that's the historical reason or a really good theological reason now, um, I think that's one reason to do it. If you want a little follow-up on this, Redemptionis Sacramentum mentions liturgical vesture in 121, 122, 23, and so on. So it's a little extra confirmation of what we've said there. But it says the sacred vestment should contribute to the beauty of the sacred action itself. So not wearing it is just missing an opportunity to contribute something beautiful to the sacred action and to indicate what the importance of the priest uh, is doing. All right, Eileen, I hope that answers your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. One, two, three, four. Come on, Eileen. I swear <laughs> I give it. As right, somebody no, who's no. named Jesse and hates the song Jesse's Girl, I'm sorry for that, Eileen. If you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys or tweet Dennis at whatever Twitter. D Macadie Macadie. Yeah, nobody will ever do that. Anyway, thank you and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.